Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Dr. Fani Hajina. Uh, She's the director of the Institute of Animal Science in the Department of Apiculture. Uh, She's over in Greece, and she she works with bees. So we're going to talk about bees and her research. So, Fani, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Please tell me about your work. What do you do? I'm a biologist by degree. And uh, since my PhD times, that was on pollination behavior of bees, um, I came back to my country. My PhD was in the UK. Came back and I'm working in, um, it was an institute of apiculture at that time. Now it's a department. We shrink a little. And uh, all my life I'm working with bees. Nothing else. It's amazing. Uh, Sometimes I I cannot imagine that one, but yeah, that's true. Well, what do you like about bees? What what interests you about them? Because mainly I'm working with honeybees, so the the social ones. And uh, what is fascinating for me, it is that their society and their community is so complicated that in fact you cannot really have, let's say, a straight answer for something that is happening. You really need to see it from, um, let's say, a global perspective. You look at it from different angles in order to understand why this is happening and why this behavior is as such. I think that this complexity makes it fascinating for me. When you mentioned pollination behavior, what, what does that mean? What do the bees, the honeybees you study, what's an example of pollination behavior? Well, it's known to everybody, of course, that bees and other bees, not only honeybees, can pollinate. But when we're talking about pollination behavior, we're interested to see, uh, first of all, how efficient they are for transferring the pollen. What times of the day that they are more abundant on the crop or on the flowers. So in order to be able, as farmers or beekeepers, to increase the, the pollination efficiency. Also, on the way they move inside the colony and on the flower, how much of pollen they transfer, for example, or how much they exchange pollen and things like that. I've heard that bees will drink nectar from flowers, but they also sometimes eat the pollen for protein. Is that true? As far as I know, they do consume some nectar if it's needed, but usually not the pollen. No, the pollen, they pack it on their rear legs and bring it back to the colony. But nectar... Usually they do consume a little, especially when their flight is quite far. And on their way back, they need to have a little bit of more energy. They need more energy to be able to to find their way back. Well, do bees really drink extra nectar and only consume part of it and bring part of it back and like regurgitate it into the hive? What do they do? Yeah, in fact, what is happening, they bring the nectar back to the hive. Exactly. They, the term that you use, they regurgitate it. So they leave it inside the cells. And then the maturation of the, of the nectar to become honey starts. And that's how we get this um, golden uh, food 
on our plates every day. How much can a bee drink of nectar? It's microliters, very, very little. It's very, very small quantities that they can carry, maybe maximum 40 microliters that they can carry, and they can consume every time maybe three, four, five, maximum, I suppose. Something about two microliters should be the average of what they take as a food. And then the pollen, they they deliberately pack it onto their legs or is it accidental that they get pollen on themselves and they go to the next flower and then the pollen transfers to the new flower? Well, in fact, they do deliberately pack it to their real legs because pollen accidentally is collected to their uh, uh, plumus uh, hair. And then they need to clean themselves. They clean their hair. And they collect the pollen. But of course, uh, evolutionary bees do go. They have as a target to collect pollen because it's their protein um, uh, food. It's their protein as food. They, they need that. So they do want to collect this pollen. But um, also nectar collectors, because accidentally pollen is gathered on their on they body, they clean and they collect a little bit of pollen sometimes as well. But deliberately, they, have, they do pack it to their rear legs. They have special structures on their rear legs. And uh, the pollen comes back in what we call pollen baskets. I'm, I suppose that you have seen a bee with carrying pollen. First of all, what do the structures on their legs look like? And then what is a pollen basket? Well, the real legs are the, the last part of the tarsus. It's a little bit more broadened. And um, it has a, a structure that it looks like a basket because it's constructed with uh, more hard hairs and uh, just holds the pollen. It's not a real basket. It, you have to have a big imagination <laughs> to call it a real basket, but it serves like a basket. So pollen is packed there because pollen is also a little bit wet. They can even touch the pollen with some of the salivary fluids and uh, help them to keep the pollen contact. And then when they go back to their colony, they just scrub the pollen, put it in a cell, and the rest of the bees continue to do the, the job. When they get back to the colony, do other bees groom the pollen off of them or they do it themselves? No, they do it themselves, the pollen collectors. So the average bee, how many flowers will it visit before it goes back home on a given trip? Is it, you know, wow. How many flowers does it take to fill it up? It depends on how much pollen is produced per flower. I mean, it can work maybe several flowers to maybe a hundred, but usually it's not that much. So it depends on the, how much pollen is produced on the flowers that uh, the bee is visited. And if the pollen is mature and it's at the time that the flower produces much of the pollen, then it will not need to visit a lot of flowers and maybe in half an hour can fill the, the pollen baskets and uh, come back. You know, that when the bee flies out of the hive, yeah. the first flower it visits take the most, it sounds like. And then it goes to the next one and the next one. Does it do anything different on flower number one versus number two or on the last one? No, I don't think so. But it's hard to say. What is important in bee behavior, foraging behavior, is that the bees go into particular flowers. They don't really go from blue flower of, let's say, a dandelion, yellow flower, I don't know, blue lily flower. They go, if they decide to go to dandelion flowers, they will go from one dandelion to another dandelion flower. 
So that means that the flowers in similar condition and um, flower stage probably also. And this is a kind that we call it uh, foraging constancy. Well, the first flower they visit, though, they're gonna, they won't have any pollen on their legs, and they'll take the pollen from that flower and the nectar, and then they'll fly away. I mean, how does the first flower get pollinated? Or is it self-pollinating because oh. the bee is, you know, moving around or what? That's a very good question. How is the first flower pollinated? Maybe the first flower for BA is not the first flower for B, B, for example, because the bees go around, around, around. But there is something else happening when the bees um, entering and exiting the colony, the entrance, they come very close to each other, and then they do exchange pollen as they brush towards each other without accidentally. This happens accidentally, but also inside the, the hive. They do groom themselves to clean themselves, but still a lot of pollen remains on their body. So they do exchange pollen and the bees that they come in, they give some pollen to the bees that they go out, the exiting bees. So the bees that they go out, when they go to the first flower, they already have some pollen on their body. And maybe this is already enough for pollination. Yes. Have you seen like time-lapse films of a bee landing on a flower and you know, taking the pollen and drinking the nectar? And if so, what do you see if you look at it in great detail? Well, we've seen in films, yes, in details, but you never, you don't really see the pollen. You don't really see what they are doing. You you see the bees searching inside the flower, trying to get the nectar or the pollen. And uh, if the pollen is a lot, you can might see a, a dust coming out of the flower. And you can suppose that this is the pollen, most of it and much of it is going on the body. But uh, it's really amazing when you see them working on a flower. They try to get as much as possible out of the flower. It's like they are in love with the flower and they touch everything. Uh, Do any of the flowers respond by opening more or moving more in response to the bee? Do they know the bee is uh, on them and and touching them? They must, right? Maybe not exactly the, the flower will open. Maybe there are these kind of flowers, I'm not sure. But there are other mechanisms in particular flowers that the bee touches one part of the petal and then this triggers another uh, movement of the rest of the petal. So that helps for the flower to open and the bee to be uh, able to collect the pollen or the nectar from inside. Yes, it's um, kind of a trick that the bee is doing to the flower. So at least mechanically, it seems like the flower responds to the bee and opens up more, right? Yes, that's correct. Anything else in terms of pollination that interests you? You know, what the flower does or what the bee does? Well, in fact, what I was doing for my PhD was exactly this, how the the pollen can be exchanged between the incoming and outcoming, outgoing uh, foragers and how much of this pollen. After that... um, I, I was working in different other uh, subjects, so pollination um, behavior has been left a little bit aside, but it's always a very in- interesting field for me. And then you were saying the dynamics of the hive are very complicated. So what are you studying mm-hmm. right now? What's so complicated about the hive? What we try to, to do in recent uh, projects uh, is to open a little bit of a window, let's say, in what we call a black box during the winter. That's how uh, some of my colleagues are calling the situation during the winter in a colony when uh, beekeepers, we don't 
or scientists, we don't really disturb the colony. We don't know exactly what is happening and uh, how it's happening in terms of temperature, humidity, but also the behavior of the bees when they start having brood and uh, start increasing and the development. Uh, there are so many gaps in our knowledge to understand what really triggers or what uh, affects more the increasement of uh, the pathogens during the winter and why we have more winter uh, mortality. And um, the last years, it's, uh, I think it's in fashion for the beekeepers as well, but uh, also for the scientists to use a, a lot of sensors, um, what do we call the Internet of Things, and a lot of sensors inside the colony, underneath the colony, uh, trying to monitor all possible variables in order to have an image of what's happening inside there. Uh, sometimes we also continue doing this uh, during the, the foraging, the active season. And this is something that we are working right now and many other scientists. Of course. Can you, has anyone looked at a hive in infrared to see the individual bees moving around? Yes, they did. And they continue to do it, and probably we will also do it. Because this way you can have um, a, an image of the, the heat that is generated because the bees are moving very close to each other. You don't really see the individual bee in this case. You see the swarm, the community. But then this can give you really valuable information about maybe the size of the, of the swarm inside the colony the position inside the colony and uh, how this can uh, decrease or increase at, according to the outside temperatures and things like that. And if you connect this with observations and other data that can come from other sensors inside the colony, we might be able to have a kind of a 3D image. Well, has anyone made a, um, you know, a bee box out of clear plastic so you can see in? At least until the bees build some of the honeycomb and you can, but why not try something like that? Yes, sure. These are what we call the observation hives. And it, it is something uh, common to have one, one comb or two, one above of the other, as an observation hive. When we go to schools and give um, lectures to kids, to teach them, to educate them about bees and the environment and they, um, what do they offer to the, uh, to the ecosystem, but uh, also for experimental uh, reasons, because we can mark the bees at the time that they are born until the time and they stay marked until the time that they are dying. And you can follow their behavior. You can follow the task partitioning, the time of the day they do it, the time that they spend for each uh, task, exactly what age, how they move, what they are doing in general. So, yeah, this is very interesting and very laborious. On the observation hives, like what, what have you observed or what have you seen papers about what's been observed? Are the bees all day and all night moving around or are they sleeping or only some mm. of them sleeping? Like what happens? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yes, the first time, um, well, I never saw them sleeping because I never watched them during the night. But I, I read about it. And it seems that they do spend quite a lot of time, not exactly sleeping, but resting. And what is interesting, it's not so much the rest, 
but what we call patrolling. It seems that the bees, they are not that active doing something particularly all the time because we think about it, but it's not. Many of them, and for quite a long time during the day, they do just patrol around the spot where they are. But maybe this is very important because this way they can get information of the needs of the colony at that particular time, and then they could transfer this information to the other bees. So the other bees, they might go foraging or stop foraging. Or maybe this is the way to to realize if um, the young ones need more food, things like that, or they are sick. That's why I'm telling you that it's very, it's complicated, but it's also very fascinating. Well, what areas of the colony, so where the queen is and the egg laying goes on and the brood is that a busy area? Like, what are the major areas of the colony? Like, how would you describe them? What goes on in each? The brood area, it needs to be kept warm at uh, average 35 degrees Celsius. So that means that you need quite a lot of bees to be around the brood to feed and take care of the temperature, The what we call the homeostasis, the thermoregulation of, of the colony, and keep also the queen warm. But at the same time, Around them, there are the pollen and the nectar. Nectar is coming in, pollen is consumed, pollen is replenished. Then nectar needs to be transformed to honey, has to maybe even move cells. So I don't think that there is any particular part of the colony that is kept quiet when the colony is active, unless it's cold and they can be more gathered towards the brood because they will never leave the brood unattended. Then as another age, yes, we could say maybe that the brood area is the most busy. Okay. So what is your research about specifically? What are you trying to figure out at this moment? Well, what I'm interested in is to find ways of uh, increasing the resistance of the local populations against varroa, which is the main pest, I would say. That's one of my my interests. And uh, together with this goes um, alternative uh, methods to control the diseases without chemicals. And then the third very important area for me, especially in the country where I live and work, is how to preserve and improve the local populations in order to help the beekeepers to increase their income but also to preserve the characteristics of the local populations. So, in fact, I'm working on these two, let's say, main areas that they are interconnected. And then another area that I'm trying really to to help uh, is the effect of uh, pesticides or environmental stressors on the bees. Well, there's pesticides, but what are the other environmental Mm. stressors? Well, together with the pesticides, it could be, for example, heavy metals. It could be other kinds of pollution. In this particularly myself, I would include also the veterinary medicines, the medicines and the chemicals that we, we as beekeepers, we use inside our colonies. So this is also kind of a pesticide as well, of course. But What kind of pesticides are used and for what purpose with the bees and then uh, the effects that you noticed? These years that I'm working with the effect, for the effects of pesticides, uh, we tested uh, neonicotinoids, mainly imidacloprid. And the last two years, uh, sulfoxaflor, that's the names that you can recognize the, the products. Sulfoxaflor is the, um, I think, the common, the 
the commercial name. Uh, imidacloprid is the chemical that is in a lot, a lot of commercial products coming out as a neonicotinoid, one of the most used ones. It is amazing, really, the way that they do work. Uh, and it's so difficult to convince farmers that they do harm a lot, the bees and uh, other pollinators and also other, other animals, because you cannot see them dying. You don't see direct effects because they are, these kind of chemicals are used in so, so small quantities in parts per billion. And what you need to, to study and continuously, not for one day or two, is the side effects. And these are the most important, I think, the side effects, because they are not easy to tackle and they are not easy to reverse for the colony, for example, to recover. What are the side effects? Does the colony act strangely? Like what happens to it? We can start from the um, uh, reduced stability for thermoregulation. We have um, reduced size of the glands that they produce the, the royal jelly. There are effects on their uh, ability to navigate, to remember, to find their way back home, effects on um, the viability of the sperm. You mentioned um, royal jelly. What is that? Yeah, royal jelly. Royal jelly is a secretion of the glands that the bee, the worker bee, the nurses at the early stage of their life, they produce on their uh, heads. And with this, they feed the queen and they feed the larvae. So, in fact, uh, it's like uh, mother's milk. It's oh, essential okay. for the bees, for the brood. But this is the food of uh, the queen. It's, uh, okay. that's why it's called uh, royal jelly. And uh, the queen becomes a queen because of quantity and quality and uh, continuous eating only royal jelly. Huh. I don't know if I continue eating royal jelly, I will become a queen. But uh, uh. that's what is happening to the bees. Okay, so the queen doesn't usually eat pollen, pollen or nectar? No, no. It's royal jelly? <clears throat> yes, it eats only royal jelly as a larva and as an adult. Yeah. It's an, um, a super food. It gives you a lot of energy, a lot of adrenaline. And this is a, a natural way of uh, boosting yourself when you want to have a little bit of more activity, um, exams uh, for the brain activity as well, not only for the body. And uh, it helps a lot. Oh. To many people. Well, yeah, I've seen people, uh, I guess you can buy royal jelly too, right? Yes, of course. You buy it from usually from beekeepers or from health food stores. Okay. And what is it supposed to do for you if you eat royal jelly as a person? You mean what it does to yourself, to, to your body? Yeah, what, uh, what are supposed to be the health benefits of royal jelly? This is the main advantage. But they also think that uh, it uh, boosts uh, the immune system of the people. So that's why people after uh, surgery and um, difficult situations, they, they also get it um, as a food supplement to, to help themselves to overcome the, the problem. I'm eating it not every day, but when I feel very tired, I have a little. My daughters, when, for example, they have exams or they are doing a lot of gym, and it also helps. It's, it's a natural way of boosting your organism without having any kind of side effects or things like that, apart from being a little bit expensive. So earlier on, you said that when um, the bees bring pollen back and nectar back, I guess there's a, I don't know if pollen gets converted, but nectar will get converted to honey. 
So what is that process called? And like, what are the steps involved in that process? Well, let's take it one by one. Nectar will become honey. And it's um, a process that uh, has two main points, if I can say that. First one, uh, honey contains about uh, 80% of sugars. And these sugars are uh, more simple sugars than what they are in the honey. So they have already been uh, changed. And also uh, 20% of, um, or, or even less, of water. While uh, nectar contains more, more water, it's more watery. But also some of the enzymes are different in nectar and in honey. So when honey is mature and it's ready for the people to, to eat or for the bees, then it contains, as I said, uh, 80% sugars and 20%. Um, and um, what it makes, what it helps to, helps in the process is um, a special uh, enzyme that the bee is produced, is secreting from the same glands that they produce the royal jelly when the bee is young. Then later uh, on, uh, these same glands, they produce invertase. And invertase breaks the sugars and helps in the transformation, let's say transformation, of the nectar to the honey. So nectar becomes honey. It's changing almost completely. Uh, there are characteristics that you can follow and you can know from which nectar source is this particular honey. But when we go then to the pollen, pollen does not change so much. We call the pollen that is collected from the flower pollen or pollen powder or flower powder. Some, some people call it flower powder. And the pollen that is stored in the colony, we call it bee bread because it's already processed. And okay. there are different enzymes there and different uh, humidity. We're not absolutely sure because there are different opinions about uh, what is best or why it is like that. But for sure, it is preserved better and stays for longer inside the colony. But does not really change, let's say, so much the taste or, or the texture. And royal jelly okay. is usually not uh, stored there. Yeah? It's uh, fed to the, to the bees. And if you want to collect it, you need to collect it fresh from the cells with the larva. Have people tried to consume nectar or have they compared the uh, nutritional content of nectar versus uh, honey? And no, what do you see? People, uh, there is no need for people to consume nectar because they will need more energy to break the sugars down. While in honey, this has already been done by the invertase. And uh, honey gives them more calories, uh, more energy. So it's less food with uh, more uh, energetic value. Well, how long does it take to turn nectar into honey? Well, it can take from three to five days okay. for the um, moisture to go down. It depends on the atmospheric moisture as well and how many bees are working on this. And uh, then the bees are keep it, they cap it, they close it. And uh, it's the time when they, um, all the honey stays in the colony for bad periods. All the people are collecting it, the beekeepers are collecting it, and then we find it in our jars. Oh, I just has anyone studied this process in detail, the conversion of nectar to honey? And is it an active process or is it just passive? Or do the bees have to, you know, chew up the nectar and 
put enzymes into it or you know add things to it like what, what happens I think it's a very very active process because the bees do work on the honey I mean um, they don't just put it on cells and leave it passively to evaporate uh, the, the moisture and become uh, honey. They do work on this uh, actively for several days in order to uh, help this process. And of course, they have already added the, the enzymes that they, they need from the beginning. And um, after that, they try to preserve it for when they need it. Um, it is interesting for for many people, for us as well, to know, for, for example, like the, the question you asked me before, for how many days this can take for the yeah. honey. If a honey, when it's capped, is always mature, some, it happens sometimes that it's not really mature. What is more important for the producers and for the consumers also uh, then is how pure is the honey that they find in the, the jar. How and pure? Oh, what, what would be in it that makes it not... What does that mean, pure and not pure? Pure and not pure. I mean that if the honey that is in a jar, it is exactly as the bee has collected it and nobody, nobody and nothing else has been or added or altered or whatever, then it's, of course, it's pure and uh, it should be also organic. But... Not speculation, but uh, a lot of problems with um, honey fraud. Honey and, fraud. Uh, honey fraud. Yes. What do you mean? They put stuff into honey to doctor it, or you know? Uh, they also put yes. They also put stuff in the honey, like um, substances that they can give color to it, or they feed the colonies with a lot of sugar, so they produce something which comes from synthetic material. Right. It, it's sugar, uh, and they convert it to a honey, of course, but it's not honey because it doesn't contain any pollen or all the enzymes. Uh, or there are other processes, even when you find in the market honey that does not contain any pollen grains inside, and it has been super filtered, this is also a kind of adulteration of the honey. Because honey should contain a, a portion of the pollen naturally, because this way also you can trace its uh, geographical or, in fact, botanical ori origin mainly. You need to know what you are eating, that it's pure, it's good quality, and from where it comes from. What is in the blood, in the plant that can be used in medicine, which is therapeutic? Okay. Parts of it can come to the nectar, and the nectar becomes honey. So the different plants give their qualities to the nectars and to the honeys, and that's why the different honeys have color, um, aroma, different texture, but also they can help in different, uh, different things. I wonder if some people take a bunch of bee pollen and put it into the honey and then eat it, and if that would be a lot better for you. You sprinkle some bee pollen in there too. Well, I suppose that they could do it uh, well in very, very small quantities, of course, and mix it very well because otherwise it will um, create a clump there. But um, if, for example, uh, you super filter honey and you do whatever you want, and then there's no way of tracing its uh, origin, but you want to sell this honey as a honey of a particular 
quality or type of um, that comes from a type of a plant that has a good price, then you can add some of this pollen. But at the end, it's missing this particular honey. It's missing the rest of the qualities, the characteristics of the aroma, the color, the texture. And in chemical analysis, of course, you can always find uh, a lot of evidence that this is not real honey from this particular plant, for example, or heather. It's just an example. But um, because honey fraud is a big problem, this is why many, many laboratories around the world, almost in every country, they do work on this. Try to figure out ways, methods, find tools, new tools to uh, identify um, the origin and the, um, the quality of the honey. Are there honey scientists? You know, what's in the honey and, and study everything about it? I'm sure there, but there must be, right? Oh, yes, yes. Many, many, many laboratories like that. And um, if you consider that uh, honey is, as I consider it as a superfood. So apart from the food, we use honey in medicine. We use honey, like other products as well, huh? uh, royal jelly, but also venom. Uh, so if you see them as a total, and you consider that they are not only for food, of course, they have to be very good quality, but they right. are also used in medicine and in uh, aroma pharmacopoeia and how we call the creams that we use for in our face? Oh, rouge or well, whatever. To, to all these um, materials that you will use in our body, so they have to be really good quality products. And this is the goal of the good beekeeper, and this is the goal of the scientists that we are working with the beekeepers. From the time that we uh, work with a beekeeper or we give advice, from the time that we inspect the colony until the time that we will need to treat a particular enemy, uh, the types of the chemicals or organic substances that we will use until uh, the time that we will collect the honey, the way we will collect it, how we are going to store it. And uh, uh, when the honey will go to the market, all this process, the beekeeping practice, plus the food chain that follows all the products, and not only honey, I, I repeat that one, it has to be correct in order to give a very good, high-quality product to the consumer because he pays for this. It's not, bee products are not very expensive, but of course they cost a little. And uh, he expects to get from this what you already promised. If you promise that honey and royal jelly can give you this and this and this uh, benefits, then the consumer demands from, from this product to get these benefits. If the quality is not good, he will never get them. And that's our goal. Do you raise bees at home or do you have them in the lab? Like, how do you interact with them and when? Uh, what do you mean at home? You mean a personal home? Yeah. Home? Do you have like a personal uh, beehive or two at home? No, I don't, unfortunately, because I live in a space, in a place where we cannot keep bees. But um, the institute where I'm working, it's um, outside of the city. So we, we have 150 colonies um, 
around the, the, the institute. And uh, they are free, of course, to apply. But sometimes we do experiments inside the lab because it's a controlled control experiments and uh, in risk assessment. And when we are testing the effect of pesticides or any, any substance on the bees, uh, we need to start from tier one. We need to start from control conditions inside the laboratory, like everybody, every, every other scientist doing this kind of, of work. So we do keep adult bees inside the laboratory in small cages. They are really cute, believe me. And they live for long. And we also start doing the larva rearing. We try to develop the young ones inside the laboratory and get adults out of them. Something like an artificial rearing. Oh, really? Yes, Are you able possible. to artificially rear bees or do other bees have to care for them? Uh, in, no, it seems that it can be done. Under um, certain circumstances, it can be done. But of course, these bees, maybe they cannot live very, very long. It doesn't seem to uh, have uh, absolute necessity of other bees to take care of the small ones in order to, for a bee to emerge. Probably they need each other because this, they are social insects. At least the, the, right. the, the common bees, the, um, the honeybees that I'm working with, uh, then they do need to be with other bees immediately after they are emerged. Otherwise, they cannot survive. Mm. And um, what I really like is that some people in our islands, in my country, they call the bee, but they don't mean one individual small bee. They say the bee, and they call melissa in Greek, and they mean the whole superorganism, the whole hive, the whole colony, which I really like it, because yes. that shows that the bees cannot really live themselves. They, they need counterparts. They need their mates, their sisters. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, very good. We're, um, you know, there's a lot more to talk about, but we're, oh, yes. we're close to being out of time. What is going to be the future of your research over the next year or two? What are you going to focus on? Well, as I said, um, I want to focus on uh, preservation of the local bees in Greece as a national uh, institution, but um, in the direction of trying to find or to establish um, populations that they can be resistant. I think that this is the future for all the, the, the beekeepers in all countries, because this way we will be we will not be dependent of the chemicals that we use till now. And of course, all the other work, it's, um, uh, it's complemented to this. It's very important as well. But uh, I think that this is uh, what I'm going to focus in uh, the next years. And okay. on top of this, of course, to be able to, to preserve the local populations, you need to take into account um, what the climate change or the trend for the, these changes or these changes can, how it can affect and how you can increase the adaptability of the local populations to, in order to overcome these problems. Because the, the climate has effect on the plants, the plants interact with the, the bees, um, the bees need the plants and this very close interrelationships between plants and bees maybe has some parts that they are, they are breaking now. So we need to make sure that this relationship continues 
and we are going to have food on our plate in the next centuries. Actually, I have one more question. In honey, how much of these pesticides show up? You know, because it's coming from bees that are going to flowers and they're probably getting a little bit of pesticide on them. They come back. The hive probably would build up pesticide over time, is my guess. And it shows up in the honey. Has that been observed? It has been observed, yes. But I think that we are very lucky because most of the pesticides, they do have an effect on the bees themselves. Uh, We can find them in wax more in more quantities, but they are very, very little in the honey because the honey takes uh, some process until it will become honey, first of all, and then the bee filters the honey inside its um, gut before it brings it back to the colony. So most of the, the pollen is already been eaten, so it's filtered. And when it comes to the colony, it has much less pesticides of what it contains Uh, what the plant is produced. And um, in fact, we are very lucky on this. The honey does not have so much pesticides. And most of the time they are, of course, it's found, but it's found in so small quantities. Most of the time it's less, it's lower than the the limit or what is considered as not uh, proper. And with uh, gotcha. people increasing uh, knowledge and um, the percentage of people that they are doing organic farming and organic beekeeping is increasing. I, I've seen a trend like that during the last five or ten years now. So we are very optimistic that at the end we will have, and we do already have a very good product already. So the problem very in good. honey, it's not the residues of the chemicals, cause more problems to the bees themselves, not to the honey. The problem with the honey is adulteration of the honey that we have okay. to... Well, that's good to know, at least. It's very optimistic, although there are so many other problems. Yes, it's very optimistic. But at the end, if the pesticides persist on our uh, agricultural um, policy and practice, at the end, we will not have bees to have such a good product. Yeah, that would be terrible. Yeah, yeah. definitely. That's what we should aim for, to preserve the bees. And maybe the robotic bees or genetically modified bees and uh, all these that also science can bring along, maybe it's not the future for our planet. At least that's my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Well, very good. Funny, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a good call. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for letting me talking about what makes me happy. Yeah. And busy. Last question, where can people find out more about you and about your research? Well, I'm publishing um, and uh, they can find some information on our website, which is, uh, we are renewing it now. It's called uh, Hellenic uh, Bee Research. But uh, if somebody just puts my name in English, he will find me. Yeah, okay, very good. We'll find you again. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 
This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.